The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. Hope you're having a great day. Um, This is a very important month to all of us with disabilities because this is Disability Employment Month. You notice I leave out that word awareness? We don't need awareness. We need employment. And it's also Disability Mentoring Day Month, which I love so much that day for high school students with disabilities to go to work to learn about employment. And I am so excited about our guest today. You know, I really look forward to this show. And I have to first give a special shout-out to Miss Yoshiko Dart, who I know is listening to the show. And Yoshiko, I know you're going to love this show, especially this show, because our guest is known internationally for his work in advancing employment, empowerment, policy, policy change. I've known him for a long time. I love him. He's a great civil rights leader for all people with disabilities. He is my friend and yours. Welcome to the show, Andy Imperato. Thank you, Joyce. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And, Andy, before we get going... Uh, and before we talk about your new position, um, I thought we'd start with you telling our listeners about your own experience with your disability and really how that changed your life. Sure. Um, you know, as, as you know, Joyce, I have uh, bipolar disorder or manic depression, and um, it really kicked in for me during my last semester of law school. I, I was a visiting student in Boston at Harvard, and um, I went kind of overnight from being a cocky law student to, who spoke a lot in class to having trouble getting out of bed and not having energy or self-confidence. And, um, you know, after a period of time, I, the depression lifted, and then I started having periods where I had a lot of energy and a lot of self-confidence, and it settled into a pattern for me. And, you know, I, when I was in law school, I kind of realized that I wanted to do kind of public interest work, social justice work, and I was put in uh, disability benefits advocacy when I worked at Cambridge and Somerville Legal Services the the summer after I graduated from law school, and that was kind of my introduction to the world of disability. And I applied for a fellowship that I got to work at the Disability Law Center in Boston, where Chris Griffin is the executive director now, And uh, it was while I was at DLC that I really made the connection between what I was dealing with personally and the work that I was doing professionally, and I started being open about my disability. And, you know, for me, I feel like I'm doing the work that I was put on the planet to do and that my personal experience with my disability informs my work and motivates me. So, um, you know, there are times where my disability can be a challenge, but, you know, overall, it's been kind of a, a real source of strength and connection that has helped give my life more meaning and more purpose. Okay. Well, our first question is from Cindy in Maine. And the question is, Andy, I really look up to you, as I'm sure many people do, but I have to ask you, when you are living with bipolar disorder, I do not understand how you came so quickly to deal with it and not be ashamed. How did you do that? Well, you know, it reminds me of a a Laura Hershey poem called You Get Proud by Practicing. I mean, I was lucky in Boston where I I first started doing this work to be surrounded by a lot of disability leaders who had a lot of disability pride and who welcomed me into the community and encouraged me to be out and open with my disability. So, you know, part of it was just having good role models, good peer supports. 
And, you know, working in a context where my experience with my disability was actually a source of credibility and authenticity for the work that I was doing. So I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, the, the context made it easier for me to be out as a person with bipolar disorder than it might have been if I had gone to a traditional law firm or some other setting that might not have been as welcoming. Right, and there isn't anything like help. I know this applies to people with epilepsy, which as you know, I have epilepsy, but for many people who, just like with bipolar disorder, don't want to talk about it, it's amazing what happens when they meet other people with disabilities. It really is. You're not alone. You know, there are many of us, but if you don't reach out or you don't get involved with the disability community, um, you know, it's impossible for us to help. So I, I think that was so true what, um, what Andy said. Well, Andy, you also had great experience, but I think you've known Senator Harkin for a long time, as I recall. But I know Senator Tom Harkin is a champion to all of us with disabilities. I don't think you go to anyone in any disability organization and say, okay, who's the Senate go-to person on disability, and them not say Tom Harkin. Um, But what was that like for you working with Senator Harkin? And could you also talk about your time as CEO at AAPD? Sure. Well, as you know, Joyce, Senator Harkin was my first boss when I came to Washington in 1993. So that was when Bobby Silverstein was the staff director for the Subcommittee on Disability Policy, which he was chairing. And I worked there for a year and a half during the the early years of the Clinton administration when we were working on the Health Security Act. And, um, you know, when, when Senator Kennedy, who was the chair of the full committee, died and Senator Harkin became the chair of the full committee, I really felt like there was a real opportunity for our community to kind of work closely with him to try to leverage the seniority and the passion that he has on these issues and really try to make an impact. So I, I ended up going back to work for him in 2010 and, you know, it was just, it, it was a real joy for me to be back with him, you know, uh, you know, after, uh, 16 years, you know, and, and to just, I, I was in a different stage in my career. He was in a different stage, but both of us were just as passionate as we had been 16 years earlier. And he just has a great staff. I mean, there's so many talented people. They all know how committed he is to disability. So I felt kind of like, a spoiled child on the staff where anything I wanted, you know, from other staff, generally the answer was yes, because they knew how important this issue was to Senator Harkin. So we ended up doing 12 hearings on different disability topics, which in a, in a two and a half year period was a lot of hearings. And I, I give a lot of credit to our ranking members during that time, Senator Enzi, who was the ranking member for most of the time, and then Senator Alexander, because they agreed to all of those hearings. We chose all the witnesses in a bipartisan way, and they sat through most of those hearings as well. So to me, that was exciting. We got to cover a wide range of topics. As you know, Joyce, Senator Harkin is very focused on disability employment. We got to have hearings on a a number of issues related to that topic. We did a CEO summit with the CEO of Walgreens, a number of other events. We issued a report on the state of disability employment, another report on kind of how young people with disabilities were doing in the labor force. So it was just, I felt kind of like a kid in a candy shop to be up there with him. I wish that the Congress was less, you know, dysfunctional and that we could have done more legislatively. We did work on the bipartisan reauthorization of the Workforce Investment Act, and I was delighted that we had a strong bipartisan vote on that in July, uh, which was ended up being just uh, about a month before I left. But, you know, I mean, for me, working for Tom Harkin, you know, is just the the highlight of my career. And, you know, I really um, benefited from being back with him and being reminded uh, of what I really believe, which is that he is the most effective disability advocate on the planet. You know, so to be able to work for somebody like that and help him achieve some of what he wants to achieve was very exciting. 
And then, you know, just in terms of APD, Joyce, I mean, you, you were part of my work at APD, so, and I know you've had a number of guests like Tony Coelho and Mark Perriello and others who have talked about it, but, you know, I, I went to APD in, in 99 when I was working at the National Council on Disability and loved my job at NCD because I felt like we were issuing good reports with good recommendations, but there wasn't an organized army outside the government that was holding the government accountable. And to me, that's what AAPD is at its best. And it was a real joy to be able to go there when it was still, you know, kind of a fledgling organization and grow a really strong board and a really strong staff, you know, build programs like Disability Mentoring Day and the Summer Internship Program, and really have an impact on federal legislation like the ADA Amendments Act, the Help America Vote Act, the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act. We had very talented staff who were passionate, and they worked with coalitions to make things happen legislatively. So, again, for me, being there for 11 years was a lot of fun, and it was also a lot of fun um, being able to leave and see it continue to grow and, and to get back with Senator Harkin and try to accomplish things at the staff level. And, Andy, I just want to uh, publicly thank you because AAPD, the American Association of People with Disabilities, that everyone knows the name of now, but I really feel that your fingerprint on that and all the work that you did helped build it to where it is today uh, because although I'm the past chair, as you mentioned, I was on the board uh, and saw you at work all that time and how much you put into it. So I just want to thank you for everything you did. Well, thank you, Joyce. I mean, you and Tony and Cheryl Sensenbrenner, Margaret Staten, Helen Roth. I mean, I just had a plethora of volunteers who made it a lot easier to do what I did. So it was a team effort, but thank you for your leadership. Team effort, but it was uh, 24 by 7, let me say that. And you didn't miss a group uh, time doing that. Well, Andy, I want to uh, move on to your new leadership role, which I'm sure that you will do so much with that also, which is AUCD. So how about if you tell our listeners about your role there? Yes, so I'm in my my fourth week in the new job. Um, I am the successor to George Jeshin, who was the executive director of the Association of University Centers on Disabilities for the last 14 years. And it's just been a real joy to be here the last month. I mean, he, he has built an incredibly strong organization with very strong staff. And AUCD is a network of 67 university centers for excellence in developmental disabilities, which are authorized under the Developmental Disabilities Act, plus a network of what's called Leadership Education and Neurodevelopmental <clears throat> and Related Disabilities, or LEND, programs, and we have a, a network of 43 of those around the country, and a network of Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Research Centers. So what AUCD does is it taps into all of that brain power, connects them with each other, helps them with leadership development and training the next generation of professionals who are going to be working with children and adults with disabilities. And we try to have an impact on public policy working in coalition with lots of other groups. And really what attracted me about coming here at this stage in my career is I just feel like AUCD has incredibly powerful capacity on the ground. Like I went and visited Miami, the Mailman Center down in Miami at the University of Miami, the Mailman Center for Child Development, you know, it's a $27 million organization. Yesterday I was in Philadelphia visiting the University Center for Excellence at Temple University, which is a $4.5 million organization. I also visited the, the LEND program at Children's Hospital. Again, an incredibly impressive group of folks. And I, I just feel like as you go around the country, there's so much capacity. Bill Kiernan's operation in Boston, the Institute for Community Inclusion, and my goal is to take all this great knowledge and research and vision that's out there around the country and package it so that we can have more impact on policy. And I feel like as we come up to the 25th anniversary of the ADA and the 40th anniversary of the special education law, now is the time for our community to really come together around a new policy agenda. And I feel like AUCD can be a really helpful part of that. 
So exciting. We have a question for you from a Cindy in Florida, and the question is, in reference to AUCD, I have always wondered what is their outreach to other disabilities. I know they get all of their direction from DD, but what about people who are blind or deaf? What happens to them? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great, great question. And, you know, I think if you look at the roots, this network was created by Eunice Kennedy Shriver and President Kennedy, uh, you know, back when uh, Eunice Kennedy Shriver was very focused on people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So we have the Developmental Disabilities Act, which authorized the network that AUCD represents, at least the, the part of it that's represented by the University Centers for Excellence. But over the years, AUCD and their members have become more and more interested in cross-disability collaboration. So if you look at Celia's program at Temple University, they run the assistive technology program for the state of Pennsylvania, and they're working with people with sensory disabilities and really all types of disabilities on a number of their programs. And that's true for a lot of our members. So when AUCD looked at a name change, they used to be called the American Association of University Affiliated Programs, they deliberately called themselves the Association of University Centers on Disabilities, not University Centers on Developmental Disabilities. And I think their vision is to continue to grow and be a stronger force on cross-disability issues. And I don't think it's an accident that they hired me. I'm, I'm not somebody who has spent my career focused exclusively on developmental disabilities, and I think they were attracted by the cross-disability approach that I've taken throughout my career. Yes, and I think that's exciting because I feel you can do so much more um, in that role. Well, Andy, um, many groups in our country have what is referred to as thought leaders. I even know um, a friend of mine who I had met at the White House was talking about, you know, different thought leaders in different, different civil rights groups. Um, and I wanted to ask you, who do you think are some of our most prominent thought leaders working to advance disability issues today? Well, that's, that's kind of a hard question, Joyce, because we have so much talent in our community and the issues are so diverse. So, you know, you can take an issue like bioethics and you've got people like Diane Coleman and Stephen Drake. You know, you can take an issue on it like employment and you've got you, Joyce, and, and Tony Coelho and, you know, Randy Lewis from Walgreens and, and others who have really played a leadership role on that issue. You know, in the legislative arena, we've got Tom Harkin and Steny Hoyer and Kathy McMorris-Rogers and Pete Sessions. You know, you've got grassroots leaders like Bob Kafka and Kelly Buckland. I just, I feel like one of the strengths of our community is there's room for lots of thought leaders. And then you've got kind of a generation of younger leaders, you know, like Rebecca Coakley and Amber Smock and Sarah Triano and Ari Naaman, you know, who are, are also thought leaders. So to me, it's, it's, uh, it's a diverse community and there's room for lots of thought leaders. So I guess what we need to do is just get more national media coverage for them. I think that's right. I mean, I think one of our challenges as a movement, and I don't think this is unique to the disability movement, but I think we spend too much time talking to each other and we don't spend enough time talking to the rest of the world. And that's why programs like this radio program are so important. You know, we need to be out there with our message to a broad audience and not just talking to each other. Right. Not to the same little group. How true that is. Um, Well, speaking about um, AUCD a little bit more, I know that you are going to have um, areas that you concentrate on, as you alluded to earlier. What are your main focus areas going to be? What, What do you want to see accomplished while you're there? Well, you know, I think some of it is is organizational, and some of it is is kind of you know what we accomplish in the in the rest of the world, you know, with Congress, with the administration, and with the coalition. But you know, internally, you know, I need to learn the organization, learn the network, learn the programs. We're going to be doing strategic planning where we look at you know where are we headed, what are our strengths, how do we build on those. 
how do we account for you know a dysfunctional Congress, sequestration, uh, the implementation of the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities around the world? There's lots of factors and things going on around us, which to me create opportunities, but also can create some real challenges for our community. Um, but in terms of you know policy areas, Joyce, I think. Employment has always been a central goal for me. It's always been important to lots of folks in our network, and, and we haven't achieved it yet. We're not there yet. Um, so as long as that's the case, employment will always be front and center for me. I think to get the kind of employment outcomes that we want, we can't neglect education, you know, early childhood, K-12 through education, higher education. All of those things help us get to the employment outcomes. And, you know, infrastructure issues. We need to have an infrastructure so people can have full lives in the community. We need to have personal assistance services. Um, you know, the, the programs that support people to live in the community need to be sustainable and they need to, to have broad support from the public. Um, and we need to modernize, you know, some of our programs that continue to have low expectations for people with disabilities. So I think employment, community living, education, uh, kind of early childhood work, those are all going to be very important for AUCD moving forward. Yeah, Andy, don't you think it's amazing that the ADA was signed, you know, in 1990 and we have achieved so much except employment? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think that... Um, there, it's one way to think about it, Joyce, is I think there's a population of folks with disabilities who've had success in the labor force, you know, and obviously you're a good example of that. I'm a good example of that. A lot of those folks are people that had quality education, skills, and disabilities that they were able to manage and, and able to, to function at a high level in the workforce. And I think as a country, for a lot of people that have more significant disabilities, we still have an expectation that it's okay for them not to work, that they shouldn't, you know, push it too much because it may not it may not be good for them, it may not be good for their physical health, mental health. And I think as long as we continue to have the attitude that it's okay for some people not to work because of their disability, that gets communicated in lots of different ways. And I think it's it's really important especially with young people that we communicate an expectation that it's good for all people to work. You know, and I really appreciate what Martin Luther King said that everybody can be great because anybody can serve. And work is just one way of serving the community. That's so right. My, that my is hope so is that we, we can have those high expectations for everyone. And, and if we can build that culture within our own community, over time, I think more people will end up in the labor force. Okay. Well, we have a caller on the line. And since this caller is the king, we better take him right now. We don't all get in trouble. Tony, are you on the line? I sure am. King Tony? Can you hear, can you hear me? Oh, yeah. King we Tony, hear you. Okay. Go ahead, Tony. Well, it's great, Joyce, to call in when Andy is your guest. Um, Andy probably has done as much as anybody or more than most in uh, trying to make life better for people with disabilities. Uh, he has a prejudice, of course, because of his own. But there are a lot of people who have disabilities who don't uh, really try to make a difference, and Andy really has. Um, the ADA, AD Amendments Act, uh, 503, I can just name those three. Um, but Andy has made a huge difference, and, and as the head of AAPD uh, for so many years, uh, to get that into the position that it is uh, today, a very vibrant, strong organization is because Andy uh, set up the foundation for that. And now he's moving into new and different pastures uh, and will, I'm sure, make a huge difference there. So he is, uh, Joyce, one of our, our premier examples of those of us with disabilities can succeed, um, and he has done it in so many ways, not to benefit himself, not to uh, um, make money, but uh, someone to make a difference in the lives of those of us with disabilities. So I love being on, Andy. I love singing your praises, as I always do. Um, so it's great to have you on the show today. I would only say one thing, that I thought your comments about 
people working are right on. Um, two things, though. We have to convince our community uh, that work is a good thing. Most uh, people in our community, the pride of having a job, the, the pride of being able to provide for yourself uh, and, and uh, loved ones or family um, is something that all of us have or are inbred with. And so those of us with disabilities are no different. But I think it's important to uh, change also the attitude of the general public that those of us with disabilities shouldn't be patronized, shouldn't be treated um, uh, like I call the Jerry Lewis syndrome, a pat on the head and go sit in the corner, we'll take care of you. Uh, more so, uh, we should encourage people in our community to serve, as you said, work being one thing, but to serve, um, but to be involved and convince the general public that those of us with disabilities uh, can do work, whatever it might be, whatever we're capable of, um, just like anybody else in society. Uh, some can succeed in other areas uh, and some uh, than, than others. And so uh, we need to be treated the same way. If you want to be the best uh, waitress or you want to be the best lawyer or you want to be the best uh, uh, host of a radio show, uh, whatever it might be, um, that you should be able to, to have that opportunity. I don't think those of us with disabilities have that opportunity because of uh, the attitude that exists in the general public, not only with the workforce, but in the general public. And I think that uh, employers are changing their ma mind a lot now because they realize that those of us with disabilities are very loyal, um, will work hard at the job that are given, and aren't uh, job hunting all the time like most people are. And so um, I think that 503 will help educate the employer, but hopefully educate our community. So enough of that. I just am really pleased to be on the show to let uh, Joyce's listeners know just what a great role you've played in so many years and, and what a great friend you are. Well, thank you, Tony. You you obviously were a huge part of what um, I was able to do with you at AAPD. But I, I want to pick up on, on your point about the need to change attitudes, not just in our own community, but in society at large. And I think there's an interesting way in which the employment issue is kind of doubly connected to that. Uh, and I know, t Tony, you and, and uh, Joyce are both good friends with Chris Griffin, but I remember when Chris was at the EEOC, one of her messages that I heard her deliver in a number of environments was that the best way to change public attitudes towards people with disabilities is by having a positive experience working alongside somebody with a disability. That's right. So, so if we're not in the labor force, but we are in the restaurants and the movie theaters and other places, we miss the opportunity to change attitudes at an, e at an even deeper level that we would get if we were in the labor force. That's exactly right. And, and it's interesting now you see a lot of people uh, with disabilities working in stores, uh, doing uh, all kinds of different jobs, and all of a sudden your attitude about their ability changes tremendously, and that's working. Um, I've had so many, you know, Justice Ginsburg, uh, she says that the, the reason that she's on the Supreme Court today is because of 503. Uh, there's a lot of people, I think, who, who basically uh, have that, that uh, have had that success. So it's, uh, it's great. You're right on target. But I just wanted to call and just thank, thank you, Andy, for all that you do. Well, thank you, Tony. Back at you. Thank, thanks, Tony. Thanks okay, so Joyce. much. Just okay, so everyone knows Tony Coelho. Thank you so much, Tony. He is so awesome. Absolutely. But you know what? Two things. Number one, it's you mentioned Chris Griffin. It's Chris Griffin that would say to me all the time, "Stop! I wish they would stop calling it Disability Employment Awareness Month. We're already aware. We just need to get people employed. Amen. Yeah, that's number one. And number two, one of the quotes Tony says that I really like is, Give us the right to be fired. You know, no pity, equal treatment. Yeah, if you don't hire us, though, you're never going to know what the person can do. So um, I think both of you 
are right on target when you talk about that. Well, Andy, I wanted to move on for a moment to talk about a very controversial piece that was recently on 60 Minutes and that NPR aired about disability benefits. And I know that we're trying to get out a balanced message on that, but could you share your thoughts about that? Sure. Well, you know, it, I mean, so I think the the NPR piece was um, on Planet Money, uh, or it was it was done by a group called Planet Money, and and it aired on This American Life, and then they took pieces of it and aired it every afternoon during prime time on All Things Considered. So that reached a big national audience, and it played out over an entire week. And then we had the piece more recently, just a few weeks ago, on 60 Minutes. And I guess what's what's frustrating to me is both pieces, I think, looked at how fast the Social Security disability insurance roles were growing. They looked at the kind of state of the Social Security disability insurance trust fund, and they really tried to make the case that the wrong people are getting on to benefits. It's growing too fast. The truly disabled people are not the ones who are getting on. It's it's people that are malingerers or have more mild or moderate impairments. They don't really deserve to be on disability benefits. And then they, you know, they went to places where there are lots of people on disability benefits. They talked about the lawyers that are helping them get on benefits and how the lawyers are, are profiting from that. They talked about doctors who were kind of writing letters that were somehow, um, you know, fraudulent, helping people get on benefits. And to me, what was frustrating about both pieces uh, is that almost never in those pieces, in the 60 Minutes piece, you never heard from a disabled person and you never heard from uh, an advocate for people with disabilities. So it was just, you know, let's talk to the senator that doesn't like this program. Let's get his perspective. Let's talk to the lawyer who's making money off of representing people who are applying for benefits. And let's talk to a number of other people who are concerned about fraud. But there was no other side to the story. And, you know, in the in the case of the NPR piece, it was a longer piece. But, again, it was heavily one-sided in terms of who you heard from. And, again, NPR did not feel the need to hear from authentic disability advocates. They didn't feel the need to interview people who were on disability benefits to get their perspective. And to me, what's sad is there is an opportunity to do an interesting piece about how to reform disability benefits programs so that they're more friendly to people working and so that we don't force people to prove that they can't work in order to get support from the government. That is an important story to tell, and there are a lot of advocates that have interesting things to say about that. But if the whole national conversation is about the fact that with the wrong people are on benefits, that we can't afford this program, that it's unsustainable in its current form, and that we need to shrink the program, if that's the entire conversation, uh, it's not going to go anywhere. You know, that's not, there's no evidence that that's a big problem, and that kind of a conversation gets people with disabilities and our, our national organizations and our local organizations, it gets our backs up, and then we go into defend the program mode. So instead of having a creative conversation about how to make the program better, we feel the need to defend the program as is. And to me, that's a missed opportunity if that's all we're able to do. Right. It's sort of diverting everything. You're spending yeah. so much time <clears throat> saying, wait, wait, this isn't true, that we're not saying what we could do or how we could make changes to improve all of this. Well, actually, that's one of my leads to one of my next questions because, Andy, I mean, you, you are brilliant. We all know that, and we've so much listened to you. We all look up to and listen to you, but I, I've heard you speak frequently about the barriers to employment with our current social support programs like Medicaid um, and how important it is because right now uh, it's a barrier to work. Could you talk about that? Sure. And, I, you know, I'm kind of intrigued by this promise initiative that the administration is pursuing because they've now created funding uh, with states to try to provide supports for, for children who are on the SSI program and their families 
that will result in those children having better employment outcomes as adults. So I'm, I'm kind of excited that there's an effort underway to try to innovate and come up with better ways to provide supports for children and their families so that, you know, they can have success as adults. But to me, I mean, I, I, part of it starts with the definition of disability in our federal programs. The four largest programs that serve people with disabilities, SSI, SSDI, Medicaid and Medicare all turn on a 1956 definition of disability. So in 1956, Congress, in their wisdom, defined disability for purposes of the benefit programs as a physical or mental impairment that will result in death or last at least 12 months that prevents you from engaging in substantial gainful activity. And most people, when they apply for disability benefits, they understand that they are um, signing a form where they're telling the government that their disability prevents them from working. And, you know, from my perspective, we should be able to identify people that have significant disabilities and need supports in order to participate in the labor force and in order to have a full life in the community without forcing them to prove that they cannot work. And I think as long as we continue to force people to prove that they cannot engage in substantial gainful activity because of their disability, we're reinforcing the idea that certain people with disabilities are unable to work. And as I said earlier on the show, I just don't think that's a useful conversation. I think the conversation should be, what are the supports that you need to participate in the labor force? Maybe you can't work full-time. Maybe you need supports to have your own small business. Maybe you need supports to get more education, uh, need supports in transportation, housing, whatever they are. But if the conversation is, are you so disabled that you cannot work, if, that, if that's the thing that you have to prove in order to get the supports that would help you to work, I just think the whole system is backward. Yeah. Yeah, and Andy, how do you prove this? How do you prove you have a disability? Well, again, you provide medical evidence that shows that you have a physical or mental impairment and you have to have you know, medical documentation of that, and then you have to show that it prevents you from engaging in substantial gainful activity. And oftentimes, we expect doctors who aren't necessarily trained in the labor market to be the ones who provide the evidence about whether the person can work or not. And again, I just think the, the way the system is set up, it's, it's based on 1956 expectations about people with disabilities and that we should be able to come up with a more modern approach. So everyone, are you hearing this? I mean, it doesn't matter if you can if see the person has a disability. You need this document from your doctor saying what? Saying not able to work. I mean, this is like totally bizarre. You know, this is such a disincentive. It's unbelievable how warped all of this is. And I have to ask you, Andy, what, what do you think we need to do to change that? Well, I mean, part of it is we need to, to change the national conversation so it's not about fraud and instead it's about investments. You know, the question is we're currently spending, so if we don't change any federal laws, we're currently spending over $450 billion a year on SSI, SSDI, Medicaid, and Medicare. And I think the conversation is, are, is there a way that we could spend that money better through an investment orientation where we expect a return on the investment? So can we spend more of the money helping people acquire skills, education, get on their feet, and then expect them in return to participate in the labor force to the full extent of their ability, and then have a safety net that they can fall back on if something happens and they lose their job or, or you know, their disability gets worse, they go through a period where they can't work. We need a safety net that's there for them. And right now, people get into the disability benefit system and it gets very difficult for them to ever leave. And to me, that, that creates uh, uh, a society where people with the most significant disabilities end up being trapped in poverty 
and not able to earn and not able to save money and not able to join the middle class. And, and I think that's what needs to change. Well, we can't make anything change if we all sit on our behind and don't do anything. So, you know, these are examples of where we in the disability community have to speak up, have to do something, have to get people moving, have to meet with our congressmen, have to meet with senators, but most importantly, have to get the disability community really engaged on this. You can't forever sit back and say, oh, no, why is that? You have to do something. And, Andy, we will also be following everything you put out on your website uh, that relates to any of this so we can, you know, keep, keep things moving. Well, well Andy, thank you. Thank you, Joyce. I, I appreciate that. The AUCD website, by the way, is just AUCD.org. As, as you'll recall, Joyce, when we were at AAPD, we weren't able to get AAPD.org because the pediatric dentist got it before we did. <laughs> I remember that. We all want to be confused with them, so you were able to get .com. That's right. Exactly. Well, but you don't have to. So that's AUCD.org. That's right. AUCD.org will be following you. Um, well, Andy, you probably heard me at the beginning talk about Yoshiko, who I love so much. Every time I describe her, I say, um, only way I can describe her is she's the real deal. That's it. She is the real deal. So genuine. Um, but as you know, in history, one man stands out as our leader, the general who helped create the huge support to advance the ADA for years prior to that, uh, Mr. Justin Dart. And I did get to know him, but surely not enough and not as long, you know, as you have uh, knew Justin. So I wanted you to share with everyone, because I hear you use him, you know, if only um, we were like Justin here, or this is how Justin would handle this. Um, what impact did he have on your life, Andy? Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, I got to know Justin when I moved to Washington in 93, and that was also at the beginning of the Clinton administration. And one of the qualities that Justin had that actually uh, is a quality that I think made President Clinton such an effective campaigner is Justin had a way when he was with you of really delivering a message to you both verbally and non-verbally that you mattered a lot and it didn't matter who you were. And I don't know, Joyce, if you remember Bill Clinton on the campaign trail, but he was the same way. You know, if, if he shook your hand, you know, it is like the, the time stopped and he was looking at you and it's like you felt that energy. And, you know, so to me what what really impressed me about Justin from the moment I met him was how much love he had for every single individual that he came into contact with. And, and, you know, when you treat the world like that, you bring out the best in people. And that's what Justin did. You know, he could go to a meeting with disability service providers. He could go to a meeting with leaders in the psychiatric survivor community. He could go to the National Federation of the Blind Conference to meet with self-advocates, to meet with people with epilepsy. didn't matter what the disability was. When Justin was with you, he made you feel like you were the most important person in his world. And, you know, that, that skill of you know, seeing value in everyone, lifting people up, making them feel important. It was just an incredible skill, and it brought our community together in ways that we would not have come together without his leadership. I agree. I agree. He, he, he was able to bring unity. You know, when I think about, if someone would ask me, Joyce, what is the biggest problem you see in our disability community today? I would say territorialism. If every one of the leaders in our disability community worked together for people with disabilities, wow, how much we would get accomplished. And that is, in fact, how he was. You know, there was none of this other ulterior motives or other things going on. 
I realize that many people with disabilities, you know, that we all have maybe not been put into positions of power, but when you're a leader, you serve. And all of us, all of us need to learn from that example that you just gave, Andy. All of us need to learn from that, to make other people feel that way and not have filtered glasses on when we're looking at them. Well, and and just picking up on your point, Joyce, um, one of my favorite quotes about leadership is from Cornell West. Cornell West says, in order to lead people, you have to love people. In order to save people, you have to serve people. And if there was ever a leader who exemplified those words, it's Justin Dart. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, di- he didn't go, you know, and, and make people feel important uh, and then move on and forget about them. He made people feel important because he cared about them and he loved them. And that mm-hmm. love was just, you know, ex- he was expressing that everywhere he went. You know, he probably said, I love you more than anybody I know. And he wasn't even Italian. And we say that a lot in the Italian-American <laughs> community. But Justin, I mean, he, you know, every time you had a phone conversation, I love you was the last thing he said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he, you know, I, I had I Dare Dart on. And when she was on the show, she was talking about how at Thanksgiving, he would have people like from psychiatric, from halfway houses and, oh, everyone you can imagine to his home, you know, for these meals. And she said, she said, let me just tell you, my father was like he is 24 by 7. You know, it wasn't, I'm Justin Dart, the leader. You know, when I'm out in public, it was Justin Dart all the time. And you know what? Yoshiko is the same way. Well, Yoshiko isn't just the same way, but I think Yoshiko was a very important source of support and strength for Justin. I think it would have been difficult, if not impossible, for Justin to do what he did without Yoshiko. And one of the things that that he said to me many times was that his most significant disability was his depression. You know, Justin had chronic depression, and his depression did not stop him from doing incredible things. Well, one of the reasons he was able to get up and do those things, notwithstanding the depression, was because he had Yoshiko there next to him telling him he had no choice. And, you know, we all need a Yoshiko dart in our lives. Oh, I know, isn't it? She, every time she sends me a note and says, Justin would be proud of you, I'm not kidding. It's like someone gave me a million dollars. Absolutely. And she spends a lot of those. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know she does. And not to mention all the time that she spends with young people. And I know that, too, was very important uh, to Justin, you know, working with young people. But people ask me all the time, where are we going to find another Justin? And I say, hey. It's within everyone. It's just, you know, can you make that incredible? This man made incredible sacrifices in his life that were just unbelievable. Yeah, but I I also think it's like saying, where are we going to find another Gandhi or where are we going to find another Martin Luther King? I mean, there are certain leaders who are one of a kind, you know, and it's okay that we don't find another one. But we need to find more one-of-a-kind leaders and lift them up and, you know, try to lift up our movement. Well, I agree with you. I mean, I get what people mean when they say that, but there won't be another Justin Dart. I mean, because he's Justin Dart, just like there won't be another Andy. You're Andy. But that man was just all the stories, the few times I was with him. But mainly, it's from me knowing Yoshiko that... You know, I see what he was able to do. It's as if when he walked into the room with these disability leaders, everything stopped. And I guess because of what you said, Andy, they must have all thought he was looking right at them. Absolutely. And they felt his love. And they felt like they were important when they were in his presence. Lesson for us all to learn. 
Well, Andy, you are probably one of the most accomplished people I've met at such a young age. I mean, by the way, went to had took a class with the president, Barack Obama. Um, you know, has been at the White House zillions of times with not just, of course, the president, but President Clinton, President Bush. I mean, he's met so many people. He's in Senate. Um, AAPD, now uh, his new position. But, Andy, what would you say of all these things? What are you proudest of? Well, you know, Joyce, it's kind of a very, this question is a good segue from what you were talking about with Yoshiko. What I most enjoy doing is working with young people. I like finding young people with and without disabilities who are passionate about our movement and I like cultivating them and trying to help them get to the next step in their career and then staying in touch with them. You know, and that's something I learned from my mother and my father who both did that in their careers. But, you know, I, I think what Yoshiko has chosen to do as her mission, you know, uh, in terms of cultivating young people, that's what I like doing. I look at some of the young people that I've known for more than a decade and have been mentoring and working with, and I see what they're achieving, you know, uh, at the White House, at the National Council on Disability, on the Hill, you know, in other environments, in the executive branch and in the private sector, and it's exciting to me. I mean, that, that to me, there's nothing more important that we can do for our movement then groom the next generation of leaders. And it's also exciting to me to watch them groom another generation of leaders coming behind them. So that, that to me, is, uh, is a great legacy, and it's something that I hope I will continue to do as long as I'm alive. Well, I know you have been, and I know you will continue to, because there's one thing I know, Andy, you love people with disabilities. You love this cause. Well, Andy, first of all, thank you for being on the show today, and best of luck in your new position. Thank you, Joyce. It's great to be here, and uh, I look forward to working with you in my new capacity. And you can count on that. And we end every show with a quote from someone that has impacted America. So after hearing this whole show, what could it only be? Lead on said the great Justin Dart. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.